since becoming the pastor of Park Baptist Church, I have, 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 uh, have had many favorite people in this church. Uh, it's been a blessing and a privilege to know so many great, amazing people. Uh, one such uh, person is Max Phillips. Uh, Max is not here today because he's in the hospital, but I, I love uh, Max Phillips. Uh, Max uh, joined Park Baptist Church in 1936 when he was 14 years old. He's been a member of this church for 81 years. He has seen almost 75% of the ministry in this church over the last 110 years. If you, if you know Max, there's not many people like him. Uh, he, he, when he eats at the Red's Grill down the street, uh, he never pays because of the care that he showed his dear wife Molly when she was alive. Uh, the owner said, your money is no good here. He's the only man that I know who regularly goes out to lunch with his dentist. He also loves just to go to the bank and talk to the, the ladies who work the counter, even if he's got no business there. Uh, Max is never slow with encouragement, but he's also never slow with offering his opinion. Max is 95 years old. Uh, he has been through the life of this church, both ups and downs. He's been through many different seasons of uh, the life of this church, many different pastors. And God has been incredibly kind to Max. At 95, he, his mind is still as sharp as ever. If you go and sit with him, he'll be able to tell you the different things that have happened in the life of this church. Well, I bring up Max because Max has helped me understand more of the, the love that a younger generation has for someone who is older, like the elder John. When John writes this letter to the churches, he's not writing this letter to someone who doesn't know. The, the church there knows John, and they love John. There is a deep, found respect for John. As Max is the elder statesman of our congregation, uh, John was the elder statesman in his day. The greatest thing that I love about Max is not the things I've mentioned, but because of his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he truly came to Christ at the age of 19, uh, was baptized under the ministry of B.F. Hawkins in this church, and he has um, held fast to Jesus ever since. Now, if you talk to Max, he's 95 years old, and he understands that his time on earth is close to an end. And yet, he does not fear death because he knows the Lord Jesus Christ. We come today to celebrate men like Max and the scores and scores of people who have been faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ in the ministry of this church. For 110 years, people have endured patiently holding fast to the Lord Jesus Christ, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom in the midst of many trials. So we come to give Jesus Christ praise and honor and glory, for he loves this church, and he has freed us, from our sins by his blood. He has made us a kingdom and a priest to his God and Father. The church in John's day, when this letter was written, was beginning to face growing persecution. Uh, so God sent a vision to a 90-plus-year-old servant to remain steadfast with Jesus. And he wrote it, gave it to John, so when, the, when, when John gave it to the church, the church would hear it in love. God has sustained this church for 110 years, and as persecution and hostility is growing toward the church in America, I pray that you will remain steadfast in his word, 
in the hope of the great and glorious gospel of our Savior, Jesus Christ. There's three headings we want to look at in terms of if we break down this passage. The first is the setting of this vision, this great vision that God has given John. And we know that John was a well-respected leader in the church, that he was the last living apostle with Jesus. So he probably was, was not executed because he didn't want to have an uproar among the people, but merely exiled to a place where he was, could do little damage. The beginning of our scriptures today, Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation of the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, to Laodicea. John first identifies that he is a brother and a partner with these churches. Of course, being a brother there is connecting to the Christian faith in general. He's part of the, the large C Christian church. But do not miss that John is also a brother. He is part of the family of God connected, tethered to these churches. He is intimately connected as a member of their family. One of the most consistent and clearest pictures of the Christian life in the New Testament is being part of the family of faith. When one comes to Christ, he comes to a new family, the family of God. And we're, we're called to, to live out our faith in Jesus in connection with that family. Now, there may be some of you here who have not officially made that choice yet. You've gone public with your faith with Jesus, but you maybe haven't been tethered to a local body. I encourage you to do so today. I challenge you to do what Christians have done for 2,000 years. They live out their Christian faith, enduring with him, with the body of faith. Do not be a spiritual orphan, but in obedience to God and his word, be tethered to a local church. It was this obedience to God's word and the testimony of Jesus that got John in trouble. He was exiled to the island of Patmos. It's, a, it's an island right off the coast of modern-day Greece in the Aegean Sea. Instead of being killed, as I mentioned before, he probably was allowed to live out his days, uh, not causing an uproar among Christians. Now, although persecution was growing during this time, and there had been several of the apostles already executed because of their faith, it wasn't a widespread persecution. Now, that, that widespread persecution is coming. This is one of the reasons why John wrote this letter. He was in exile because of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he testified to the goodness of God in Christ. So he could not only identify himself as a brother, as part of their family, but one who was a partner in the tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance that is in Jesus. John was experiencing persecution, as were these churches. There's something that binds us together when sharing common experience. When Ken Tedder was battling his cancer, he would often say how much of a connection he felt with others who are going through the same thing. This is one of the reasons why God puts us together in a family, that we can have shared experiences to encourage each other in the midst of our trials. I often say to people in the life of our church, when they're dealing with their own troubles, I may say, I personally can't relate to your trial. I don't know what you are going through, but I know this. There are many in our body who do. There are many in our body who have walked the same road that you have walked. They are partner with you in that trial. Share your burdens with the body. 
But John is not also just kind of how do we get through the tribulations and the trials here. Let me just kind of make a, 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 a side here. When I speak of, of persecutions and trials, we kind of want to wedge those together. Uh, most of us today are probably not going to face the kind of persecutions that we see in the New Testament. But we can, how we handle persecutions in many ways is the same way we handle trials. So it may be a trial of, of finances, a trial of family, maybe not direct persecution brought in from the outside world because of your faith in Christ. It may just be trials, but we approach many of those issues the same way. John also is not just a partner in tribulations, but in the kingdom of God. He desires the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ to fill the earth. That's what Casey prayed as we opened the service. We want people to submit to King Jesus and serve him as Lord. Brothers and sisters, we have been made, past tense, a kingdom of priests. We need to faithfully exercise the keys of the kingdom when we preach the gospel of Christ. Now, many of us have been praying for almost over a year and a half, that we would grow in our evangelistic fervor. They would be more faithful in sharing the gospel. And by God's grace, one of the ways God has, has helped grow our church in evangelism is by bringing us the Hinsons. I praise God for Grant and Amber, how they demonstrate a life lived out for the lost. If you are struggling with your own evangelistic fervor and your own ability to, to share the gospel with the last lost, can I encourage you to spend time with Grant and Amber? And just watch their lives. This is how God grows us, by giving us examples in the life of the church. One of the exhortations that fills the pages of this book is the, is the, is the exhortation to patiently endure with Jesus Christ. If you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will face persecutions. The Bible says through many trials and tribulations you will enter the kingdom of God, Acts 14.23. You will face persecution. You will face weariness of walking with Jesus. You will, you will face opposition to the gospel. You will be afflicted, as Paul said, in every way, but not crushed. You will be perplexed, but not driven to despair. You will be persecuted, but not forsaken. You will be struck down, but not destroyed. Because he will hold you fast. The reason why we sing songs like that is to remind our hearts, whatever you're dealing with now, that Christ is the one who will hold you. He is the one who will keep you. When your love is cold and when, the, when, the, when Satan tempts you to despair and you, you drift towards sin, you need to remember that Christ has died for you. That Christ will hold you fast. The revelation of Jesus Christ in this book is to encourage you to patiently endure with Jesus. So, if you interpret this book and it does not lead you to be more faithful to Jesus Christ, more, more, having more patient endurance in the gospel, then you have missed the main point of this book. John says here, was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, most likely referring to Sunday, long before uh, Christians have, had, have days off uh, on Sunday to worship the Lord. Uh, what early Christians used to do, they used to wake up early in the morning before work and gather as God's people to remember and to reflect on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Jews worshiped on Saturday, the Sabbath. We worship on Sunday to, 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 to remember the resurrection of Christ, to, to sing about His grace, to hear the Word preached, to encourage each other to be faithful. 
Christians set aside Sunday as the Lord's day. And even as I heard last night, that is under attack more and more and more. People saying you don't need to gather on the Lord's day to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. One of the ways God wants us to patiently endure with him is through the body of Christ. We show that we love Jesus by how we love the body of Christ. It's all woven throughout the scriptures. If you say that you love Jesus, love the people of God. If you say that you love Jesus, but you do not love the people of God, how can you say that you love God? You can't see God, but you can see the people of God right in front of you. This is how we show the world that we are patiently enduring with Jesus, holding fast the body of Christ. So it says here that John was in worship, and he was commanded to write down all that he saw and share it with the churches in Asia. It says the seven churches in Asia, probably these seven churches were on a postal route, they would be traveling, easy to distribute a, a letter or a book. But more importantly, I think this seven is used in Revelation to, to show completeness and wholeness. This letter written to the seven churches in Asia is really written to all churches. Now, you will see different aspects of a church's life here. And just, just know, the first, uh, one of the first churches we'll, we'll talk is this, this church, Ephesus. Ephesus was a church for 40 years. Think about that. We have been a church for 110 years. The church, the pastors of Ephesus were, were Paul, Timothy, John. God has been faithful to our congregation. So let us get to the meat of this text, the vision of the sun or the son of the vision. We kind of understand this opening setting and we look towards this vision It's important to note that although John saw the vision, we are simply hearing it. The Bible says, blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and who keep what is written in it. We still live in the age of the ear. We hear the word of God. We don't see it, see pictures, but we don't live in that day yet. Look at what this vision is. Revelation 1, 12 through 16. Now, when I read this, here's what I want you to do. I want you just to hear it. Oftentimes when we, when we approach this, we're going to analyze it here in a second, but when, when, when the first century audience heard this, this uh, prophecy, it would have just been producing emotion in their hearts. Okay? They weren't always trying to figure out all the, 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 the details yet because they probably would have understood them when, when, when it was first read. So hear the word of this prophecy. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw the seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the the golden lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed in a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. His, His hairs, the hairs of his head were white, white like wool, like snow. His, his eyes were like a flaming fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a fire. His voice was like the roar of many waters. From his right hand, he held the seven stars. And from his mouth, a sharp, two-edged sword. And his face was shining like the sun in full strength. Now, they would, have, they would have heard all that, and they would have immediately been connected to the Old Testament imagery. 
the first century church knew the Old Testament very well. They would have thought of Isaiah and Ezekiel, Daniel and Zechariah. Hopefully you even heard very similar language when Lindsay read Daniel chapter 10. It's not meant to be taken literally as Jesus physically appears that way. But it's rather to communicate who is the, the person or the character of Jesus and what he, he, his role in redemption and judgment. I'm going to kind of walk through these eight things I think we're called to see from this vision. The first I want to point out is that Jesus is in the church's midst. The voice of the one speaking was in the midst of the lampstand. Jesus is our Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus has promised that he will always be with us, even to the end of the age. He will never leave us nor forsake us. That communicates that right here in this passage. He is in our midst. Now imagine you are a struggling church in the first century, awaiting persecution, awaiting judgment to come upon you, and you know that the Savior is in your midst. Think about you in your life, in your trial, the things you are facing today. Know that God is in your midst. He has not left you. His church will prevail. The second thing, he's not only in our midst, but he's in our midst as Savior, as Messiah. Jesus is one called like the Son of Man. Thinking back to last week, the prophecy of Daniel chapter 7, when the Ancient of Days appeared like one like the Son of Man. He is not communicating that Jesus is merely a human being or in human form. He is the long-awaited Messiah who was, who was sent to become like us, to free us from our sin by his blood. This would not have been lost on the first century audience. The third thing, the messianic son of man was clothed in a long robe with a, with a golden sash around his chest. I think that, that communicates two things to us. The long robe and, and the sash was, was probably a picture of royalty. Uh, scholars are debating on which one is more prevalent, the idea of him being a ruler, the idea of him being a priest. I think it's both. I think that this idea that he is, he is the majestic king, he was wearing this long robe because he's going to be the ruler of all the kings of the earth. We even see how, how he's defined that in chapter 1, don't we? Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is the, the, the king of kings and the lord of lords. But secondly... He's not only our king, but he's also our high priest. In Exodus 39:39, the, the one who wore, wore the golden staff is a picture of the high priest. We know that Jesus is both king and high priest. Psalm 110, he is coming in the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews chapter 7 through 9, he's both king and priest. We see this verse in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, which I read earlier. It says, therefore he made... He had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of his people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. When you look at the, the connection between this passage and Isaiah 41, this idea of God being our help, God being our help in, in our sin, is, is written all over this passage. He's in our midst as our high priest. He suffered for us. He paid for our sins and all who would repent and believe in him. Can, can there be a more encouraging picture that the king of kings, the rulers of the kings of the earth, would become 
our faithful high priest. The elder John and our elder Max do not fear death because of this. Because he paid for our sins. We do not fear death because our debt has been paid. Because of our high priest who's always interceding for us. I'm not sure if you follow the news, but just this past week, Pope Francis uh, made a statement. He said, the Lord does not leave us as orphans. And we can all say a hearty amen to that. And then he says this, which is utterly wrong. We have a mother, the same one as Jesus. Mary takes care of us and always defends us. Beloved, the Bible doesn't show that Mary is the one who cares for us and defends us, but the faithful witness, Jesus Christ. He is our advocate, whoever lives to intercede for us. The Bible is relevant to today. That happened just this past week. The fourth thing that you see here as this vision unfolds is that he is pure. The Bible says that the hairs of his head are, are white, white like wool, like snow. If you understand this, this, this picture, it's, it's, it's quoting again Daniel chapter 7. But also uh, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Jesus is pure. And because Jesus is pure, it should encourage us in two ways. First, his purity should cause us to rejoice because his sacrifice was a, his, his pure sacrifice means that we are free from our sin. If Jesus was not pure, then he could not pay for our sins. But because he was pure, he was able to pay for our sins. But it also should challenge us. Because Jesus is pure, guess what? We should also be pure. We should fight our sin to become like our Savior more and more. But notice what it says next. Fifth, his eyes were like a flame of fire. This is a picture of a penetrating gaze. Nothing is hidden from the sight of the Lord Jesus. Jesus is the only sovereign he sees and knows all. He knows all history, and he knows all of your history. There's a Latin term called quorum Deo, which, which means before the face of God. Uh, many Christians have, have designed to, to live their lives quorum Deo, before the face of God. Because we know that there is nothing done in secret. He sees when you pray tirelessly for others. He sees the burdens of your heart when you want your family members to know Christ. He, he sees your desire to grow in the Word of God. He sees how you love Him. It's not hidden from His sight. And yet He also sees the other things in your heart. Your lust, your greed, your discontent, your indifference, your impatience, your bitterness. When we stand before the face of God at the end of history, His judgment will be perfect because He knows all. So we want to live today, quorum Deo. We want to live now before the face of God, knowing that we will one day stand before His face and all our secrets will be exposed by the Lord Jesus. Romans 2.16 the sixth thing we see here is that his feet were burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. This is to communicate strength and power, specifically in the idea of battle. In those days, a, 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 um, a, an army had to travel long distances in order to fight. 
So the better footwear that you had was a sign of strength. If you had bad footwear, you would not be prepared for battle. But what it's saying here is our Lord is prepared for battle. He is strong. He is powerful. The enemies that stand against the Lord will face his strength and his power. Seventh, his, his voice is like the roar of many waters showing the power of his word. You ever gone to a waterfall and you hear that water rushing down or go to the, to the, to the edge of, of the ocean and you hear that roar of the waves? The Bible says that is his word. It's, it's like this powerful multitude that is coming towards us. It's a word, like a trumpet, it says earlier, like the, the roar of many waters. It's to communicate that this word that is spoken demands attention. This is one of the reasons that why we stand and read the word of God before it's preached. Here's why. Because we are tempted when the word of God is preached to ignore it. We are tempted not to submit to this word, not to, to, to come to this word as what it really is, a word that demands your attention. This is why it's hard to focus. This is why what the evil one has done in our world is, it is he's tried to kill your attention span. So when you come to the word of God, you can't sit for 30 minutes and hear the word because you're so used to using your time in other ways. But this word, this word that God speaks, is sharp like a two-edged sword. We see that in Hebrews 4. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who, to whom we must give an account. This same image is used in Revelation 19 at the end of history, when the Lord will come back with a sword from his, from his mouth. We remember in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, when the breath of the Lord destroys the Antichrist, the word of God is powerful. The eighth thing we see here is that he holds seven stars in his right hand. We're going to be looking at this idea of stars and the angels next week. I pray you come back. Um, but what, what, all I want you to see, I think what he's trying to communicate is that Jesus is in control. That those things are at his right hand. The sign of his power. Lastly, this great picture of his face was shining like the sun in full strength. It was brilliant it was majestic, and it was powerful. We should think back to the transfiguration when those, the inner three saw Jesus transfixed before them, clothes shining white in full strength. Now, we can't take this literally. Again, why? Because if you looked at the sun in full strength, you wouldn't be able to look, right? It's this idea to communicate the, the majesty and the, the royalty of Christ. Now, again, this would have been easily understood by the first century audience. It was meant to show the power and majesty of Christ. He's, the, he's above all other earthly powers. Now think about the emotion there. He is more powerful than Caesar, who claims to be the Lord. No, our God is above all. If we miss the emotion of this prophecy, and we only look at the details and try to find the times and the dates, we miss the purpose. Jesus is in our midst. Our king, our high priest, is in our midst with purity, power, and piercing perception. Who can stand before him? Well, lastly, we, we get this, this sentiment of the vision. How should we respond? What should our emotions be when we hear this vision? There's no casuality in John's approach when he encounters God. It says that he falls on his face as though dead. Like Isaiah, 
Joshua, Ezekiel, when you enter into the presence of God, we fall on our face. And yet, what is the biggest move in in contemporary Christianity? Let's become more casual in our worship. Well, the Bible says we should not approach God casually, but with reverence and awe. God is in our midst, and He should be honored as such. And yet, this awesome God, this God who is powerful and mighty, is also incredibly kind. Look what it says in Revelation 1.17. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. I am the first and the last, the living one. Behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys to death and Hades. I could just picture the Lord Jesus reaching down with his right hand and say, fear not. Now remember, in this culture, this honor and shame culture, body position is a very big deal, right? So the fact that Jesus reaches out with his right hand and lays it on John is to communicate this intimacy with John. This mighty, glorious Lord comes to him and says, Fear not. I am the first and the last. This is a, almost a direct quote in Isaiah. It's in Isaiah 44, but it's also in Isaiah 41. It says, I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am He. And then you see this connection of verses in Isaiah 41.10, which is a favorite of many, of many of you. It says, Fear not, I am with you. Be not be dismayed. For I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. For I, the Lord, your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, Fear not. I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Beloved, He is with us. He is with us in his, with his strong right hand. The God of the universe, the only one who can condemn us, says, Fear not. You no longer have to fear death. Because He holds the keys to death and Hades. He died. He died. And behold, He is alive forever. Christian, does that give you hope that Jesus died and rose for you? He's alive forevermore. And as he is, so shall you be. Let the gospel of Jesus Christ give your heart courage so that you can patiently endure with him. One of the reasons why we come to church on the Lord's Day every week is to be reminded of this glorious gospel. To be reminded to endure with Jesus. As Grant's saying that Jesus is better. He's better than everything in this world. And at the face of, of death, you should not fear because you have Christ. He's our faithful high priest who paid our debt. That doesn't mean we're not going to face trials. It doesn't mean we're not going to face tribulations. But whatever we face in this world, Jesus says, fear not. I'm alive. He lives forevermore. We can face tomorrow because we know that he lives today. Now, if you're here and you're a non-Christian, please know that this tender touch of God and his kind words of acceptance that are spoken here are only for those who trust in Christ. They are offered to you freely, without charge. Jesus died, whosoever 
would believe. But only for those who would believe. If the Bible is true, one day you will stand before this awesome God and you will fall on your face, regardless of what you think of in, in this life. And one of two things will happen in that moment. Either he will reach out his right hand and say, fear not. Welcome home. Or he will say, as you have denied me, so also I deny you. Depart from me. Friend, this vision was given as a warning to all those who have sinned against God. When you stand before the face of God, Coram Deo, where will you place your hope? This vision is a plea to you to turn to Christ. There is no other God. He is our only hope. He is a kind Savior and a fierce judge. I pray that you embrace Him as Savior, but you would not experience Him as judge. Beloved, Park Baptist Church has held out the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ for 110 years. The church has helped many find Jesus Christ. Max Phillips heard the gospel at 19, and he's now 95. He believed and has patiently endured with Christ for the last 76 years. There have been scores and scores and scores of people who have heard and believe in the gospel through the ministry of Jesus, through the ministry of Jesus Christ in this congregation. As our church, like the church in the first century, is facing this growing persecution and this growing hostility, I pray that we would partner together yet again in the tribulation and in the kingdom and patiently endure with Jesus Christ. Because we belong to him who is the first and the last. We have an awesome and glorious Savior who is in our midst. So we can stand today and say, fear not. He has prepared a place for you and he is coming with the clouds to bring us home. And we long for the day when one day that trump will resound. And the Lord will descend. Even so, it is well with our soul. Let that be our hope this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace that you have given Park Baptist Church. God, we thank you that you have endured us, allowed us to patiently endure in Jesus because of the hope of the gospel. God, I pray this vision, this glorious vision of our great God who is pure and powerful would resonate in our hearts, that if anyone is here who is thinking about walking astray or, or running from you, God, that this glorious vision would, would encourage us to persevere in the faith. And God, I pray that if anyone walked in this place discouraged, they would leave encouraged, knowing that you reach out with your right hand and say, fear not. I pray that none of us walk out of this place with fear. Your fear has to do with punishment. And perfect love have cast out fear. So God, let us glory in the gospel of Christ. And let us know, let us know with our, the deepness of our hearts that you live forevermore. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.